Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast, where we explore how to center our lives and our leadership in the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ. In the midst of the disruptive cultural shockwaves of the 21st century. Join us as we learn to take the love of God seriously as the force that holds all of us and everything together. Hey, yo, this is Matt Tebby. You're listening to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Hope everyone listening is having a fantastic day. I'm joined by my friends, Christy and Ben. Hola. 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 Amigo. Uh, everybody, Amiga. everybody has been uh, on vacation. We've been vacationing uh, mm-hmm. recently. Ben, you just got back Woo-hoo. from New York yeah. City. New York City with my daughter. Uh, my youngest daughter graduated from high school, y'all. It's like a new era around here. Feels like it. I mean, yeah, it's crazy. So we went to New York. She wanted to go to New York to see. Uh, she's into this uh, K-pop. You guys heard of K-pop? Oh yeah, Korean pop bands. From you? <laughs> from yeah, just from me, right? Yeah, but she's into these bands, and I I had no idea about them. But uh, guys, these things are huge. These bands, some of them. So we went to see this band called Twice, uh, and they like sold out MetLife Stadium in New York. Whoa. And so she was like, I want to go to New York and I want to go see twice. So that was what we did. And we also saw a Broadway show and it was great. We had a a really lovely time Hmm. uh, palling around New York together. Was it just the two of you? Just the two of us. Yeah. A little trip, a little, a little graduation trip. It was loads of fun. It was, it was though, I was amazed at how hot it felt like a 90 degree day in Indiana Mm -hmm. feels pretty hot, but a 90 degree day in New York is almost unbearable. Yeah. It was like it, a concrete jungle. Right. The heat it. just radiates off the sidewalk and off the buildings. And it is crazy. Like we were planning our day based on how much time we would have to spend in the sun walking. And it was like, we could not <laughs> handle more than about 10 minutes in the sun walking. We just got overheated and we would look for the stores with the lowest air conditioning temperatures. Mm. It was crazy. Christy. It was loads of fun. Christy, welcome to another episode of Tell Me You're From Minnesota Without Telling Me You're From Minnesota. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know, guys. I can handle a 90-degree day. I mean, I, do, I don't like the heat uh, in general, but it just felt so much hotter than it feels here in Indiana. So yeah. anyway. Well, Matt, you, did you didn't do a, a trip for two. You did a trip for four. Mm-hmm. Mm, trip for eight, because we went with my sister-in-law and her kids and my, oh. and my mother-in-law. Yeah, we just got back from Disney World. Or Ooh. as my Ooh. kids, happiest place on earth. Uh, yeah, they're happy I'm there, <laughs> definitely because of how much money they extract from me. Um, <laughs> no, they, um, they. It was good. It was also oppressively hot, so yeah. 96 and 80 percent humidity. I mean, there was one day when my my mother in law was talking about how her undergarments were completely soaked, like oh like gosh. just. <laughs> Just talking about it as though this is something we always yeah, talk about. Well, yeah, yeah. It's just and out of her mind. Like, <laughs> right. no, it was like, it was like so hot that all propriety was out the window. Right. And you were just like trying to stay sane and mm-hmm. alive. And you were verbalizing, you know, your condition yeah, in order yeah. to make sense of it. That's yeah. how hot it was. Yeah. Yeah. You guys, well, um, I went to Michigan and you guys, oh. it, it was delightful. <laughs> Because it's the lake and like everything in the lake is cooler. And even that's, if it's hot, you just jump in the water and. That sounds really we, nice. Uh, yeah. Yeah. We we did eight because we have eight in our family uh, and our dog in our Yukon drove to Michigan 17 hours. In one in one other. car? You have a car that fits one that many people? One car. Yeah. That's, yeah. I mean, I suppose you have to if you have you eight have in your family. It's true. Yeah. So um, it was so fun. Like tubing and kayaking and all mm. things water and super And fun. you drove there from Colorado? We drove how, there. 
how long? Seventeen hours. Christy, yeah. I'm old enough to remember when Paul Penley swore off cross country <laughs> family trips. Yeah, he was like, I won't be in the car more than six hours. And then we had more kids, and he was like, can't afford it. So now we got to drive. <laughs> <laughs> that idealism goes out the window as soon as yeah. you realize, yeah. oh, these how plane much tickets? is eight plane tickets? <laughs> oh gosh. Well, uh, it's, it's good to have everybody back. Um, in the saddle, so to speak. Ben's still on sabbatical through July with our church. Christy's in crunch time for writing her dissertation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we are also pressing on with the podcast, and we have Johnny Morrison on the podcast today. I talked to him, I think, by myself. Yep. Yeah, you did. Um, on his book, Light as Air, uh, Practicing Authenticity, Depth, and Purpose in a World of Empty Promises. And this is one of those books that I enjoy reading, not only for the content, but for the skill. One of the things that I commend Johnny for, uh, even in the interview, is how he's able to bring together a bunch of different sources um, from a variety of like theology and sociology and anthropology, literary world, bring together all these different sources and summarize them and synthesize them in a in a very succinct, there it is, way. 125 pages this book is, but he does a lot of work in 125 pages, and so... Yeah. I just enjoy reading a book that uh, where somebody has that kind of skill because e- even as I talk about his skill, you can mm-hmm. tell that economizing words is not one of my gifts. <laughs> <laughs> so oh, that's funny. Yes, it is. It is a gift, though. Um, I, uh, there's something that intrigues me about um, short books, like intentionally short books, rather than like books mm. that are just like, oh, this is the length of a book, so you know, write this many words in it. Yes. Um, Anyway, that fascinates me. So, yeah. uh, that's well, great. Well, I look forward to uh, listening to this interview. I haven't heard it. So, yeah, me neither. Yeah. All right. Is that all we need to cover? I think that's friends? it. I think we've covered it enough. Yeah, we did it. We did it. All right. All right. All right. Well, here's here's Johnny. Johnny Morrison joins us today on the Gravity Leadership Podcast. He's a church planner, pastor, and writer known for his integration of creativity, spirituality, and culture. Johnny graduated from Western Seminary with an MA in Biblical and Theological Studies and received his Doctorate of Contextual Theology from Northern Seminary. He and his wife, Tori, live in Salt Lake City, where he co-pastors Missio Dei ESLC Church. Today, we're chatting with Johnny about his book, Light as Air, Practicing Authenticity, Depth, and Purpose in a World of Empty Promises. Johnny, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's good to be on. I'm a longtime listener. Yeah, cool, man. Well, great. It's good to have you. And uh, I'm just curious, Western Seminary, That's is that is that in the Northwest? Yes, it's in Portland, Oregon. Portland. And then Northern is in Chicago. How, do you, how does, between Portland and Chicago, how did you get lost in Salt Lake City? How did you end up there? <laughs> so I'm from Salt Lake originally. Okay. Um, right. This is where I was born and raised. Um, my mom and my stepdad are still here. I have a brother, half brother who's here. Um, not in Salt Lake. He's in like a kind of rural coal mining town in Southern Utah. So this is, this is where my roots are. I love Salt Lake city mm-hmm. and got involved in the church movement here because a church from Portland was planting here. Oh, cool. Uh, so yeah, church, uh, kind of a notable church, Imago Day Community Church in mm-hmm. Portland, Oregon. Um, you know, which is like a, maybe a different podcast and different conversation about their history and <laughs> in the family of origin we come from. But I things was may doing, have changed with them since you planted. Is that is that true? A, like a lot of things have changed. Yeah. Uh, a, a lot of things have changed, and some I feel thankful for in direct conversation with us because we still have a good relationship with them. That's great. And so dialoguing between the two and. Um, but yeah, they were, I was connected to the church world there. They were planting, wanted to be a part of coming back to my home and doing church life here. So mm, that's awesome. Uh, before we pivot to the book, I have one question. So f- being in Indiana from Indiana, my perception mm-hmm. of Salt Lake city is, is it's predominated by just sort of the stereotype that it's full of church of Latter-day Saints, mm-hmm. right? Um, what, what, Give me one or two things about Salt Lake City that people from the Midwest maybe don't realize or appreciate. Totally. 
Totally. Salt Lake is amazing. It's, I love living here. Um, and I think the thing that people miss the most about Salt Lake specifically is that Salt Lake does not feel very LDS. So there's parts of Utah that that stereotype is so true. There's parts of Utah that are 90 percent like Provo uh, or places like that. Oh yeah, you know you know you know you know your geography a little yeah, bit here. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Provo, Logan, some smaller towns where um, the culture is still just predominantly um, LDS. You would be lucky to find any other kind of religious expression, like let alone mm-hmm. Catholic, Protestant, anything else. You'd be really lucky to find. But Salt Lake feels like a city a bit in rebellion to its suburbs. Interesting. And so, um, like, we were one of the first cities to elect a female gay mayor. We were one of the first cities to pe- to legalize gay marriage. It got City squashed in the by country? Our, in, the cr- yeah, in the country? we were, like, 12, if I remember correctly, on the list. Wow. Um, but then it's in conversation with a very conservative state government. So it's, like, I think Salt Lake City was, like, we're going to legalize gay marriage, and Utah as a whole was, like, you are not going to do that. So then as a whole, <laughs> <laughs> we dragged in at the very end. Um, yeah. Or, like, during, let's see, during... Uh, like the a couple rounds ago presidential election, Salt Lake caucused for Bernie Sanders over Hillary Clinton. Interesting. So I always think of Salt Lake as uh, kind of like a Portland, kind of like a Seattle, maybe like, like the, an the little Texas a bit. Yes, like the little brother of those places, in that it is responding to the conservatism of its broader culture. So you, you mm. lots of young Mormons move into Salt Lake City deconstructing a faith that is mm-hmm. similar to the deconstruction that we see maybe in the rest of the United States, but also uniquely shaped by the contextual realities of this place. Yeah. Um, or you get a lot of people moving to Salt Lake from the Midwest, from the East, from the South, because they want to be outdoors, um, but still want to yeah. be connected to city life. And so our church, for example, is, I don't know, this is off the top of my head, but like probably 70% transplants from other places who bring okay. in with them political ideologies or realities of uh, other cities, but wanted to be 45 minutes from the mountains versus where they were before. Yeah. Well, this is a great uh, transition then to your book because much like the collision and then the tension that exists between these two maybe poles or or reactions to what's happening in culture, your book is written about uh, it's, it's sort of a map and a compass f- for a larger context that's experiencing a lot of the same disorientation and conflict, right? Um, mm-hmm. Talk a bit about the genesis of this book. How did the, I guess, the the worldwide cultural earthquake, some of the things you've referenced, right? The election yeah. of 2016 and, uh, you know, the legalization of gay marriage. Um, those usually aren't on my top, usually aren't my top five of the things I've experienced in the last eight years. But what, like... How 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 has your how have these contributed to the formation of your need right now to write this book? Yeah, yeah. So I started writing the book in 2016, and it feels hard to not identify the election of Donald Trump as a part of the realities that we were wrestling with in that moment. Right. I heard an activist say recently that um, Trump was not the reason we protested, but he was the water that we were swimming in. Like that was setting the temperature of culture and the environments of culture. And there's so there's all these systemic realities that we're working against. But you can't name those things without naming how the Trump administration was shifting that culture. So that was a big part of it. The Trump election and watching the fragmentation of faith, the unraveling of Christian communities that came in the wake of the Donald Trump election was definitely a part of the genesis of Light as Air. Mm-hmm. But there was also global realities. Like we saw this like kind of alt-right movement take over in the United States. And we also saw that same kind of political manifestation all over. You have like Brexit in England with the election of Boris Johnson. You have like a far-right nationalist group takes over in Poland. You have Turkey, a few years earlier. Hungary. Turkey. Yeah, Hungary, 100%. Uh, Modi Italy. in India. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You, uh, exactly. Bolsonaro in Brazil. You see these like, these groups of people that are all making kind of similar promises, similar um, political uh, conversations that are happening globally right around the time of the election of Donald Trump. And then in response to that, you saw these protest movements kind of similarly all over the world. 
um, largely of men and women of color responding to those elections. So whether that's the Me Too movement of the United States, the Yellow Jackets movement of France, and more recently, um, you see these kind of like large protest movements that are responding to that kind of like political instantiation. So at, at a political level, that was a big part of the motivation. And then there was like what I saw in Salt Lake City. There was what I saw in our own church. There was what I saw and witnessed when I was honest in my own life, um, yeah. which began a larger, broader conversation about dissatisfaction and desires as sort of what, what I begin to name in the book is I think kind of the heart of what's happening in this moment. Yeah. You do talk a lot about desire. The first section in particular really double clicks on that. And that's something we talk about a lot. I think, I feel like it's a often assumed or ignored in mm -hmm. Christian discipleship and formation. But when you read uh, the scriptures, you read the church fathers and mothers uh, and you read the people who've had the prof most profound impact on Christian spirituality, it is front and center, yes. maybe central to this project of being formed like Jesus. Um, maybe maybe just give us a, a, a short apologia, like what interests you about desire um, as it relates to the Christian life? Why does that light you up? Mm. Oh, that's such a good question. I mean, I think what you've just named is so right, that as you look at historical church, you look at the historical church, mothers and fathers, you look at some of the thinking that has so shaped us. And I, I totally agree. When you look at scripture itself, you see, I think, this orientation around humans that we are first and foremost desiring beings more than we are uh, thinking beings or rational mm -hmm. beings. We are bodied beings who navigate the world in a material kind of way with our hearts forward, and I think often our minds sort of catching up in the project of chasing what it is that our heart desires. And I think what has motivated me so much or inspired me so much about that is I think that especially in modern Western and evangelical expressions of faith, our desires were really villainized or demonized. We yes. were told to repress those desires, to suffocate those desires. Kill them, yeah. It's a, yeah, to 100%. We took, we took, exactly, we took Paul's, language of like crucify the flesh to mean kill your desires. Yes. Um, or we went the direction that Augustine, I think falsely goes, which is you can only have sort of one desire uh, that doesn't necessarily liberate the rest of your desires. And so we raise like a generation of youth group kids and Christian kids who um, go through purity classes, abstinence education, desire repression training. They get out of those spaces. And I'm one of these kids. You get out of those spaces and I think it is just impossible, nearly impossible to like sort of keep the lid on that pressure cooker. All hell breaks loose. It's a hundred percent. And it's, I think it's false. Like, I don't think that has to be the way in which we form ourselves or orient ourselves, because if we truly are desiring beings, then the question becomes less, how do you repress desires and more, how do you tend them? towards more beautiful things that are actually deeply fulfilling, healing, and whole-making uh, that give our desires room to live and breathe and flourish. Yeah. And now, a word. The Gravity Podcast is sponsored by the Gravity Formation Course, a 12-month cohort-based training in practical spiritual formation where you'll learn to notice how God is already at work in your life so you can participate more fully in the life God shares with us. It's a discipleship process that goes beyond just gaining more knowledge and trying new practices. In the Gravity Formation course, we go below the surface of our lives so that we can notice and name our deepest desires in God's presence and to discern how God is at work in those desires to lead us towards holistic flourishing more transformation, more life, more joy, more love. We've trained hundreds of people all over the world in this formation framework, and it has helped many people to have a sense of God at work in their lives, to learn how to be more at home in God's love. If you'd like to learn more, go to gravitycommons.com formation. From a sponsor. All right, let's get back into our conversation. Yeah, Johnny, this is what I appreciated about your book. Um, there's like a reorientation, attending to your desire. We talk a lot about attaching our desires, like what, what, what are our tires yes. attached to? And then we talk a lot about changing our relationship to things via mm. desire. Um, 
meaning, uh, you know, my desire for kids, right? Uh, it took us seven years to have kids. And mm. so for a long time, there was this uh, kicking against the pricks. You know what I mean? Like it was really, <laughs> I was really frustrated, angry or whatever. And and so a lot of people then use God to, if you pray, if you pray and you're faithful, you'll get kids. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of people say, well, you got to give that up to God, uh, which basically means some form of me uh, spiritually bypassing that desire for children, mm-hmm. right? Or gaslighting myself. Kids aren't that important. God's most yeah. important. And so um, say a bit more about what this what this tending to desire looks like um, and, and how it maybe maybe tangibly or practically how, how it's worked out for you. Like what, hmm. what is that? How has that looked in your life? Hmm. Oh, I so appreciate what you just named um, because I think that dynamic is so at play in our modern churches where a desire is unmet in a person's life. Yes. And the response to them is often uh, like exactly what you just named. It, these kind of cliches about find your ultimate hope in Jesus, direct your love towards Jesus, and all these other things will be added unto you. And I think that there is like a legitimate kind of trauma that happens in a person's life when they have this desire, which I also believe is in almost most, in almost all cases, fundamentally a good desire. It can metastasize, it can turn resentful. But I think at the end of the day, you have this desire for kids. That's a beautiful thing. And you're denied that desire and told to place it in something that supposedly will heal you. And if it doesn't lead to a deeper satisfaction, if it doesn't lead to that kind of uh, the life at the end of the tunnel that we were hoping for, I think that there's like a legitimate trauma, like an existential wound that happens in our lives when those desires are unmet, but we kept being made promises that they mm-hmm. would be met. Yeah. Um, and so I think tending is I that that language comes to me from a lot of people have used this language, but that language comes to me from Augustine. I think has some issues when it comes to this conversation to begin with, but I do like his thinking around um, what he calls the dissentio anime or the restlessness or the listlessness of the human soul. That there is this dynamic at play that we've just named of unmet desires. Yeah. And Augustine's response is that those desires have to be tended. Intending does not always look like repression, though maybe that's sometimes helpful in the case of like addictions or wounds. Like I'm not saying that self-discipline is never an important process of healing, but that they have to be tended like a garden if we want them to flourish and find health. Intending happens through the material practices of the Christian faith. Yeah. And so they happen in, um, like Sung Chen Ra talks about, they happen in lament, which is something I think the modern church is pretty... Uh, uh, opposed to doing very often, but it's an important part of what you just named that uh, you don't deny, repress, or hide the difficulty that you've experienced, the hope that you hold for children. But lamenting is actually a material way of naming those things and curating those things and tending those things and seeing those things. Um, so I think you look towards material practices that start to um, care for lovingly and compassionately the desires that we hold and the hopes that we have in our heart. And, th- and those can look like a lot of different things. When I say material practices, I don't just mean um, what we maybe would name as like sacraments within the church. I think being in community, having dinners together, throwing parties together, serving in your neighborhood. There's a lot of different expressions of what a material practice mm-hmm. can look like that yeah. I think actually helps and curates our hearts. Yeah. Yeah, that's really wise, Johnny. I appreciate that. I, I'm thinking of Teresa of Avila um, talks about the need to sit amongst our weeds mm. when she talks about tending desire and by weeds, she means unwanted um, or things that we would castigate as wrong. Mm. Um, and we often talk about facing and befriending desire. Mm-hmm. So moving toward it rather than away from it or uh, being dragged around by it. Mm-hmm. There's some kind of, uh, there's some kind of, this is what we mean by new relationship. There's some kind of moving towards it so that I feel sad. Mm-hmm. And I know how to feel sad. And I cease the activities that I often give myself to so I don't have to feel sad. Mm-hmm. Um, you have this beautiful part of your book where you talk about the elusiveness of happiness in our culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that this is related to what we're talking about. Can you, why is happiness 
so stinking hard to come by in the most <laughs> affluent, successful empire the world has ever seen. Yeah. Yeah, I think that is such a uh, funny dynamic, and I appreciate you naming that and asking that question. Um, I think I, I tell a story in chapter two about uh, the dynamic that happens every year around Christmas, and I think it's a good expression of this, is uh, I like Christmas. I think it's a totally fine holiday. So I, Every time I tell this story, somebody gets a little bit mad at me that I'm like riffing on Christmas. I, I, I'm for Christmas, but... I do think Christmas is a good expression of what we're talking about because Christmas is promised sort of culturally and imaginatively to be a moment and a season of happiness and celebration and joy. And so to prepare for it, we put a lot of expectations on ourselves. We buy a ton of gifts. That number continues to increase almost every single year, how much money we spend on gifts, um, how much money... Mammon will be displeased if it isn't. A hundred percent. Our credit card debt continues to go up. Then we get to the day. We do the gifts. We do the meals. Those things are beautiful. They're fine. They're right uh, in some ways. But then you get to the end of it. And psychologists have started using this term Christmas blues or Christmas hangover yeah. to describe what the like psychological and existential effect of that moment is, is that you did all of this. You got to the end of the race. You ran really hard after uh, the kind of like chief feastal holiday of capitalist America. And you come to the end of it. The presents are open. The kids have already forgotten them. And you feel this deep level of dissatisfaction with the efforts that were put into it. And then what's fascinating is it's like the day after Christmas is again one of the largest shopping days of the year. Yes. And so how do we choose to answer that question as we go back to the same sources of promised happiness, which I think at its very best is a kind of purchased catharsis. Like You can purchase temporary catharsis in the market, but we see how long that holds us for and how long that it actually addresses us. And so I think that sh that's an illustration of how um, kind of ethereal happiness is. It is a promise that so many things in our culture make, especially the market, that if you buy the right things, if you work hard enough, if you make enough money, then this elusive feeling of happiness can be yours. And then we do the right thing, yeah. spend the money, and maybe experience it for a few moments, but then get to the end of the day and feel like, oh, it's already gone. Yeah. And that's kind of the nature of the market. Yeah, it, it's, it's, uh, I know this is, it's almost orgasmic. Like the climax, yeah. the, the build up to opening whatever, getting whatever, it, it almost lasts as long as like an orgasm. Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, totally. And then it's over. And then you need another, like, well, where's the next dopamine going to come? Yes. From? Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. Well, you've already opened this door, so I'm going to walk through it. This market economy we live in, it commodifies everything. You talk in the book a bit about how it makes it difficult for us to know who we are. Yeah. That there's a, there's an, um, one of the ways that the religious functions in our life is that it, it identifies us and creates, uh, creates a, a being that knows who they are, knows where they're from and knows where they're going. Can you talk a bit about how living in a neoliberal capitalistic market economy makes that difficult for Christians. Yeah. Yeah. I think coming out of the Enlightenment and movements like German idealism that sort of locate all meaning into the abstract, ethereal um, location, mainly of the mind, like what you perceive and what you yes. know and what you identify. Yes. It starts to have this effect on how we see ourselves, how we see others, and how we see place, which then just gets ramped up exponentially when you add in the market economy, which will make sense, hopefully, in a second. But when you, in these movements, these places, and I think exactly what you just named, once upon a time in our ancestral religious story were locations of meaning. Like you were more than just what you thought or how you were perceived. You were a body in a place with a community these ties and these holds gave you a sense of connection and meaning. Yeah, the there place were people, that you, there were, people were uh, Jesus of Nazareth. Yes. Right? Yes. So people weren't, their surnames were their location. Yes. And I, I think it, this is one of those things I think is really hard for us to even get our minds around because we've been so far removed 
from the kind of effect place can have on us. Um, I think one of the best books for this, to get into this for like Christians today is Willie James Jennings, The Christian Imagination, because he just does a really beautiful job talking about what place meant for people pre-colonization of the United States especially. Um, But in that, he talks about the way that our, we have this connection to place that is um, identity creating. And so we have an identity as people. Place has an identity as uh, as like a, something that is deep and wide and even sacramental if we believe the creation story to be what it is. And then we're part of a family where there's a kinship that's shared between us and others. In commodification, the market and this like post-enlightenment movement, it slowly strips m- all of those forms of meaning away from those places. And so land becomes a resource, not a home. And people become measured in output, in efficiency, in productivity. And I think maybe the the, the most extreme example that we have, well, the most extreme example we have is like the transatlantic slave trade, that you can remove people from land because land doesn't belong to anybody. It's just a resource and it has no bearing on our identity, our connection, our community. And people themselves really don't have any um, connection or identity outside of what they're able to produce so we can remove them and take them. But I think we still experience it today. Like one of the primary identities that we find ourselves in in modern America is that we are entrepreneurs that we need to invest in in order to start new things, in order to find our sense of meaning. We're going to start businesses and measure and productivity. And you see all of these things get reduced to output. Yeah. Um, which is not, I, th- I think this goes back even to the Christmas story. That's a cheap kind of meaning. And it is a meaning that you have to chase forever, a stomach that you can never stop feeding yeah. Uh, and one that I just think wears you out. Yeah. Yeah, it's a cancerous way to live, right? Mm-hmm. The, the the sign of a healthy organism is knowing when to stop expanding <laughs> and growing and when to then maintain or develop or even replicate what you have. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, man. So much to jump into there. You you named about six things that I could have a whole podcast with you on. But <laughs> yeah, I want to so keep... Totally. I'm just so fascinated by all this. But... So we kind of named some of these social pathologies, right? We didn't get into resentment and violence. You talk about that in the first part of your book as well and the scapegoat mechanism and how this all works through the commodification of desire, et cetera. But I, I want to pivot a little bit now to the, the second and third part of your book where you actually do talk about why uh, the kingdom of God matters and how, mm. how Jesus matters in these cultural moments, in the midst of these social pathologies, right? How do we understand Jesus' ministry and the good news of the gospel in light of what you're saying. What, mm. what difference does it make and what can we see that's helpful for us? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think, yeah, that's the the most important question, I guess, for this book. Um, and I think there's a handful of places that we could go. I think first and foremost is that the Jesus story is a story that is deeply embodied um, and it speaks to the whole realities of our world. So systems and institutions, individuals, communities, and even place. And I think that's really important to recover as Western Christians because our Jesus story has been so um, like decoupled from its incarnation and from its kingdom and from its connection to people and from the way in which Jesus is telling a story that I think presses on institutions of injustice. And when we when we dislocate it from those things, I think in some ways the economy has sort of won out because mm-hmm. Jesus is now in sort of like Martin Luther's paradigm, there's a spiritual kingdom and then there's the earthly kingdom. Yes. And so the Jesus story actually doesn't really offer that much to the earthly embodied physical kingdom. Yes. And so I think when we can reclaim that story, which I think is the story that is present in scripture, it's the story that the majority of the world has, I think, still been telling about Jesus. When we can reclaim that story, we can gain an imagination for what our desires are, how our desires are meant to be curated, how we are embodied beings, how the message and work of Jesus has something to say for the world around us. I think that's like, that's a big part of that next thing. It's like, does our imagination for the Jesus story, is it big enough for the things that we've named, these pathologies and cultural realities that we're saying before? And I think the good news is that it is. Like if we reclaim that story, it is big enough for these questions. Yeah, and this is one of the things uh, that I wanted to chat with you about 
that could be its own podcast. But the way I've described this is the the confluence of like a, a global market economy with the Enlightenment uh, led the religious world, the spiritual world, retreated into the private, personal, internal abstract realms of human existence. Mm-hmm. And it vacated the public, communal, material, um, uh, external world of yes. the Christian. And so so this is this is part of you know rationalism too, I guess, which was a daughter or son of enlightenment. So so what happens then is, for instance, money is only spiritual in as much as if I feel like I love it inside, mm. that the spiritual world of money, it isn't how much I can have. That, that question no longer matters. It doesn't matter how many barns I have. That question no longer matters. What matters mm-hmm. is, do I love my <laughs> barns or not? Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think that that is a thoroughly, we, we've given away what you're describing. We've given away the material, public, communal, external world of the spirituality that Jesus lived in, this embodied incarnational world, that's your language. We've yeah. given it away and it, it, we've evacuated the, the public communal space as having anything to do with our spiritual lives. Yes. Yes. And it's been devastating. This is how this is how Christians could land in Indonesia, see a spice they want, and say, uh, we're going to enslave you or kill you, get you to convert first, hopefully, mm-hmm. uh, and then take everything you have for the glory of God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We still do that. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Yeah, I that's such I think. Man, that's such like such a great description of what we're naming and what we're talking about. And I think that's you see the effect that it has on place. You see the effect that it has on others and our ability to justify enslavement. And then I think the secret cost of it that, that we often don't name is that there's this like existential effect on our own hearts and our own bodies is that yes. we are we are ghosts of our former selves, that we were meant to be embodied in flesh, yes. incarnational, deeply connected and when you i love when you when you evacuate all those places you leave them. i think you lose your your wholeness you you are supposed to be so much more than this yes yes so then you name um love as a central key reorienting component of how to reclaim um a spirituality that matters in a disoriented and fractured world. Can you share a bit about how love works? What does love offer the system of the world that, that redeems and sanctifies it? Hmm. Hmm. What a beautiful question. Um, I think I, I going back to what you just named about how we've evacuated and removed so many of these, like the material, faith in the material and made it into the abstract. I think we've done in some ways the exact same thing with love. So your example is really good. Like it's not about how many barns I have. It's about whether I love my barns, but then we've made love something immaterial. So we've made it basically not real. It's a sentiment. Yes. Or a feeling. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And I think for, that's fine. It is a feeling. It is a sentiment. But for Jesus, love is also an ethic. It's yes. a way of living in the world. It's a political economy. Yes. Oh, it, yes. It, it, it answers the question, what are people for? Yes. Differently than the stock market does. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. And I think I love what you just said because the way love answers that question, it is so different than the way the market does. And it means then for Jesus especially – that the means and the ends of our community work, of our engagement with the world, have to be shaped by love. And when love is abstract and immaterial, then I think actually the market gets to shape the means because we've justified the ends based upon this abstract. Well, at least they became Christian, or at least they're going to go to heaven, or at least it's to the glory of God. Yeah, or at least this thing made by slaves says, uh, I can do all things through Christ who's right. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Right. Whereas if love is embodied material political reality, then the means and ends have to match one another. Yes. So there's how a coherent, we work, There's a coherence. Yes. 
between between my thinking and my embodied presence and yes. and those things what you're saying is the kingdom of god has a logic of mm-hmm. love that wants to not just reorder and shape our hearts and minds but our but our bodies and our relationships and our possessions yes. and our uh how we organize locally yes. and 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 nationally too yeah was it was it is it audrey lord who says you can't dismantle the master's house with the master's tools uh, and I think it's like, it's similar. You cannot dismantle Babylon with the tools of Babylon and you cannot build the kingdom with the tools of Babylon. We'll be right back. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code program for a four week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code program. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Let's get back to the show. Yeah, and this is probably, you know, um, one of the big awakenings, repentances I've had is just to wake up to how compromised I've been with the tools mm. of Babylon and just baptizing Babylon into New Jerusalem. Um, mm. And it's not, it, I, there wasn't a head bowed, eyes closed, hand raised moment for that. But, but because we're social creatures, because most of what we believe lives in our bodies and bones, not just in our prefrontal cortex, I don't have to volitionally choose to mm-hmm. be a good Babylonian. I'm just mm-hmm. ordered and shaped and normed and formed into that. Yes. And so what you're describing in the book then is, is, is really a, a call for Christians to take their um, ordinary, everyday uh amazingly complete formation seriously and endeavor upon a counter formation mm-hmm. that, that mm-hmm. won't happen. That doesn't happen 62 minutes a week, but like, <laughs> you know, yes. um, yeah. And, and, and maybe as we wrap up here, Johnny, towards the end of your book, you talk about, um, then I talk about love, but you talk, you draw on the strings of beauty and rest. Mm-hmm. Um, this is something that, um, you know, we just mentioned, you just mentioned in your Christmas example and in like uh, getting more and the restlessness in that, like rest is verboten mm-hmm. when you constantly have to chase the good, the good life or, or um, even deliverance or salvation from this existential anxiety or emptiness or feeling of not having enough or being enough. Um, but, but maybe, maybe share, share some good news with us. Um, mm. Why do you highlight beauty and rest, and how do mm. they fit in the healing of our desires and our world? Yeah, I love that question. I, I think rest—it's it, exactly what you just named. In a in a world of deeply commodified persons, imaginations, desires, and systems, rest feels so anathema, and it feels very weak. I think is like a Christian practice that would shape us in some other way. Like it yeah. just feels weak and ineffective. And I think that illustrates how upside down the the counter formation of the kingdom is. Because to use Walter Brueggemann's language is that rest is one of our greatest protests against systems of commodification. Yes. And so if we actually want to push against something, if we want to remove ourselves from something, even if it's only for a moment in order to get formed in a different way, then rest becomes one of our most powerful tools in that it isn't all that powerful. It's about giving up power. It's about risking in humility and vulnerability. And that's what makes it deeply accessible yeah. um, and also pretty nerve wracking to truly rest. Um, and I think you, you you were talking about how you over the last couple of years have like sort of begun to understand more and more of the ways in which you've been baptized into Babylon. I think rest has been for me the place that has revealed that the most in my own life. Um, I, so I started, so I started writing the book in 2016 and then went on sabbatical in 2018. Hmm. And the goal of sabbatical in my mind, when I 
started it was like, I'm going to finish this book and I'm going to get some stuff done and rest will be easy and I'll be away from church and it'll be great. And then I started that trip, my sabbatical with five days of solitude at a cabin in Colorado. First day was really great. And then it was like 26th hour where I could feel my body like almost like, I don't know any other language to use except it felt like it was kind of like pulsing with anxious energy. Yeah. And I like didn't know what to do. And it felt weird to not have things to accomplish. And I was only like a day into the detox of work. You know what I mean? Like we're barely, we're barely there. And I think that began to reveal to me that even as I was like rationally starting to Mm -hmm. deconstruct Babylon and rationally beginning to understand how my desires had been formed and shaped and malformed by the market, like it is in my body and it's in my operating system and rest starts to help us reset those rhythms and it's uncomfortable and it can create that sense of anxiety. And then that's where I think we, we slowly tend to what is happening in those moments of rest where that is beginning mm-hmm. to get revealed. And I, I just remember I had, I, there's a chapter in the book, I named this, but it was like a mantra and a prayer for me is that I was feeling so much anxious energy that I would just go on walks and all, and I could, all I could do is remind myself, like, I'm not in a hurry. Like you're not in a hurry. There is no hurry here. And that became my prayer for all sabbatical. And then it became in some ways the prayer that I've continued to offer all these years later, as I start to feel myself get pulled back into the anxiety of these urgent commodified systems and moments and to remind myself like, Oh, I'm a, I'm a, I'm an embodied person in God's world partnering and participating in the work that God is doing, that's a different orientation. Yeah. So then when you talk about beauty, Johnny, Mm. how does that, how does that participate with rest? Mm -hmm. What are you referring to? And then what does that open up for us? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for asking that question again. Um, So I think we're familiar in the church with spiritual practices that maybe revolve around formation or revolve around discipleship, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. But I think essential to the Christian imagination is practices that are deep, that are all about um, beauty because of the way in which they expand how we see and how we imagine the world around us. And so I think that there's this like essential rhythm into the Christian life of engaging with things that are beautiful. And that doesn't mean um, expensive or necessarily extravagant, um, but it means that there is an aesthetic quality to these things that I that I think resonate with us as embodied beings. And I, I think that happens almost most consistently in seasons of rest when we're moving slow enough and still enough to perceive and to participate in those things that are beautiful. And what they, I think the other thing they help us do is they help us get grounded in our placeness and in our homeness. And that can be like dinners that are really beautiful that you have with your friends. It can be sunsets that you've chased into the wilderness that get you grounded into a place. It can be art that you do. Uh, It can be a lot of things, but I think that there's this, there's this way in which these practices help ground us into our, our placedness, our at-homeness in this world, rest and beauty and time with people. They, they have this way of grounding us in the here and the now. Yeah. You know, both rest and beauty are us throwing ourselves into the abyss of God's love. Mm. We basically are standing on the precipice of control and mastery and domination. Yes. And when, when you, and literally when you put your phone down and go on a silent retreat or you lay on your back in, in, at midnight on a mountain there in Salt Lake City, yeah. you gaze at the sky you're taken in by something that you aren't in charge of. You're yes. you're enveloped in something that that actually penetrates you and impacts you, but you don't get to dictate. Yes, I love that. You don't get to dictate it. And so it is a you mentioned vulnerability before. It is thoroughly vulnerable. Mm-hmm. But but we are only permeated by love through vulnerability. Like we're mm-hmm. like we we can protect ourselves from hurt and pain. Um but but that that will also shield us from soul transforming love. And so yes, what you lead us through in this book, Johnny is really important. A lot of books deal with just spiritual disciplines. A lot of books just deal with what's wrong. A lot of books have nice notions about what the kingdom of God and Jesus can do. But what's great about your book is in, in a very succinct pithy way, 
the book isn't terribly long. It 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 brings these things into relief for us. Focus long enough for us to see and not go away and forget. Hmm. And so um, I, pre- I appreciate the economization of words. I appreciate the way that you bring, I don't know, three dozen different authors and ideas to bear <laughs> uh, throughout throughout the book. Um, and uh, it's a gift. So thanks for writing it. Oh, thank you so much for saying that. I, I appreciate that that's what came through and that you would take the time to engage with it. Uh, you know, you always worry when you put something into the world, you're like, I think this will be confusing to everybody who engages with it. So yeah. for you to say that is really helpful. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate it a lot. Johnny, um, where can people find you? If, are you? Are you writing regularly? Are you working on something new? Are you available on the socials? How can people connect with you if they want? Yep. Yeah, all those things. I am. Uh, you can find me. I have a website, uh, Johnny, J-O-N-N-Y-I-S, johnnyis.com. I have a Substack um, that I write on, and I am working on another book that will come out uh, spring of next year mm-hmm. on how Jesus understood the gospel. Um, and then... Yeah, you can find me in those places and I'm on all the socials and yeah. Great. We'll put some of that in the show notes. The book again is Light as Air, Practicing Authenticity, Authenticity, Depth and Purpose in a World of Empty Promises. Johnny, thanks for being with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Matt. It's good to be here. You know, something that came through in the interview and comes through in Johnny's book over and over is how central desire and love are Mm. to the work that Johnny's doing and how uh, both desire and love are central and kind of what's wrong that our desire gets absorbed or consumed uh, by things and we give our love, our affection, our time, our energy, our attention to things that cannot fulfill or sustain a good life. Mm. And so uh, Johnny's book really is a map to help us locate where we are and to get us back on track. I really appreciated him a lot yeah. in this interview. And uh, I'm glad you guys finally get to listen to it now since yeah. you weren't there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I thought about as we were chatting and is this retreat that we're doing in uh, this is August, right, Ben? Yeah. August, beginning of September, August 31st through September 2nd here in and Indianapolis. I, yeah. I was thinking about how, this retreat is a response to a lot of the things that Johnny's naming. Like we were, we're, we didn't write a book, but we decided to host a retreat because of a lot of the stuff that we talked about in this podcast. Yeah. Okay. So I'm like in Colorado. So tell me about the retreat because what are you teaching on? What is the schedule? Like how much does it cost? Um, Cause I bet our listeners would want to be a part of it. These are great questions. Christy. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the retreat is called Bright Sadness, Making Space for Grief and Joy. Again, it's, it's August 31st through September 2nd. That's Labor Day weekend, uh, Thursday through Saturday of Labor Day weekend, that is. Um, and yeah, we are uh, hosting this retreat here in Indianapolis at an urban retreat center that's run by some friends of ours. And I think we were just thinking, you know, with the pandemic and all the cultural upheaval, you know, the, of the past few years, um, it's just, <laughs> I don't know how you guys feel, but it's been a lot, right? Um, yeah. And yeah. it's not like we've all had plenty of time to just reflect on <laughs> what we've lost, uh, to reflect on, you know, just the, the traumas and the tragedies, as well as the graces and the gifts of the last um, few years. So that's what we wanted to do is just make space for that. So what, you know, what do you, the two questions we're not going to do that much teaching. We're just basically going to be providing space and a framework for retreatants to work through two pretty simple questions. What do you need to grieve that you haven't given space for? And what do you need to celebrate that you haven't given space for? And so the structure of the retreat will be basically exercises and frameworks for people to kind of gather up those elements of their life and Mm -hmm. then discuss and talk uh, about those things together um, with other retreatants. And so um, it's going to be, you know, two days of just kind of lingering over uh, home cooked meals. I'm going to, I'm going to cook for all the retreatants and we're going to do fire pit conversations. Um, Lots of time to just kind of work through all those unprocessed experiences and feelings of the last few years. Um, Love it. Yeah. So is there um, a cutoff date? When When do people have to register by? Well, you can register anytime, but there are only two places left. So because of the nature of this retreat, 
you know, it's not going to be a uh, hundred people. It's going to be 12 max. Mm-hmm. And we are at 10 right now. And so okay. there are two spots left, uh, to attend this retreat. And, um, yeah. So anyway, uh, it's $325, uh, to come to the retreat. Um, you'll also though need to find your own lodging. All the, all the, uh, rooms at this urban retreat uh, center are taken up, but there are, you know, you can find an Airbnb around if you want, or there's some like bed and breakfast type places that are not too far away um, as well. So anyway, you can check it out. We'll put a link in the show notes for it. Um, and, or, and, or you could go to a bright sadness.eventbrite.com uh, to just see what the retreat's all about and to register. So. Yeah. Awesome. Do it. Yeah. Yeah. All right, y'all. Well, uh, yeah, listeners, uh, hope to see you there if you're able to come. Only two more spots. Only two more spots. Get yeah. in while the getting's good. Yep. I'm starting uh, to think about our menu. So good. It, yeah. That three hundred twenty-five dollars is going to be worth it just in the food that you're making. Ben's a pretty good cook, y'all. I <laughs> know. Uh, no, seriously, really good cook. Um, well, I hope I, I can figure it out for twelve people. I'm a little nervous about the number of people. Now you'll be fine. Right. It'll be great. I'll get you a calculator. You can multiply all your recipes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I'm going to need to do some math, guys. So I'm going to have to work this out. Uh, before we get out of here, Christy, did uh, did you hear what Ben said to me when I gave him a comb for his birthday? You gave him, that's mean. You gave him a comb for his birthday? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> what did he say? Thanks. I'll never part with it. Poor Ben. <laughs> so sorry he makes jokes and then you're the all about you. The the oh. joke kind of it's a weird joke, Matt, in some ways. Cause like why would you never part with a comb? <laughs> Isn't that what you're sp- like that's one of the main <laughs> things you do with a comb? Well, but maybe you can explain yourself then, Ben. Why okay. did you uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> why did you say that? I just- <laughs> It's not my fault you said that. Anyway, and the joke also works on another level because I don't have any hair. Right, I shave my, I I shave my head. I guess listeners, listeners not. might not know that. But yeah, yeah. I mean, all the hair I that I have. A lot of hair. I have a lot of hair. <laughs> you do I have, have a lot, lot of hair. fake hair. <laughs> oh, you have uh, fake hair, Christy? Yeah, it's you know. Confessional yes. time? No, it's not confessional time. No, she will I think let we've everybody and all people know. Yeah, oh. I I got I have like extensions. I oh, love I missed, them. I missed that, Christy. I didn't well, know yeah. those were extensions. That's fun. Oh yeah. I mean, so. half of this is my hair, but Okay. Yeah. But you got extensions. All right. You know. I uh I've been thinking about putting extensions in my beard. Cuz all of my hair right now is on my face. <laughs> yeah, I think you should. Yeah. And, and what just if? so and just so everybody knows that I'm not bald shaming Ben. Ben, it was probably a half of a decade uh-huh. of me encouraging you to shave your head before you actually did it. So I'm a big proponent yeah, of yeah. Ben's bald, beautiful head. Yeah, yeah. The the um, yeah, it looks it looks better this way than trying to figure <laughs> out what was going on with. I, I feel like I had like bald patches in weird spots, and I was like, "This is enough. I, we're we're done." I either have to invest in some extensions, or there go. We're just. I shaving. look like an accountant so. from 1972. It's time yeah, to get this, rid of this. It's time to go. It's time to go. <laughs> All right, everybody. Now, now I look like a biker from the 80s. So oh my it's God. much cooler. So. <laughs> Uh, anyway. Oh gosh. All right. Well, later. Send extensions See you next time. to Peace. Ben. Yep. Yes. Peace. Peace, y'all. <laughs> Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. If you're finding it helpful, we'd love it if you tell your friends about it. Ratings and reviews online also help others find the podcast. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. You can join our Gravity community for free. You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox, as well as an email most Fridays with curated links to articles that we found interesting or helpful. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com slash join. Our show is produced by Ben Sturkey and Matt Tevy. Aaron Sturkey edits and mixes the podcast. You can check out his work at aaronsturkey.com. We'd love to hear from you. To record a question or comment for us, go to gravityleadership.com slash message and click the start recording button. You can also email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. Catch you next time.
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.